Hello, hello, hello. Well, our God is a good God. And I was been reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 today. And um, John says the door of heaven was open and he saw all of these wonderful things that are in heaven of the elders and the beasts that are worshiping God, looking to the, 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 the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also a lamb, was revealed to break the seals. And there was a lot of worship going on. The wonderful thing is we don't have to wait till we get to heaven. We can worship tonight around the throne. So I invite you to stand. Keep that picture in your mind that we are all gathering around that throne that right now we can't see with these physical eyes, but by faith we can. And let's worship him for he is a good, holy God who is with us always. The world is yours and everything in it is all at your command. There is no end to your domain. The planets shake, the galaxies tremble, they turn within your hands. There is no end to your domain.
to worship your holy name for you alone are the true God so we thank you that you hear our worship and you receive it in fact you take residence in it so you're here with us this evening as we are worshiping reminding ourselves of who you are what you've done and to tell you how much we care for you up in the ashes Your love has brought us out of the darkness into the light, lifting our sorrows, bearing our burdens, healing our hearts. To our God we lift up one voice, to our God we lift up one song, to our God we lift up one voice, singing hallelujah. Song. To our God, 
Now and 
and all the ways my heart and soul will sing for all my days and the days of eternity a song of praise to the Lord Almighty now and always now and always my heart and soul will sing for all my days and the days of eternity a song of praise to the Lord Almighty now and always now and always
of what we see going on. But may we always be reminded that you hold us in the palm of your hand. You're never going to let us down. You're always working on our behalf, even when we can't see it. Because you are good, good. strong in 
as we have this evening be reminded of all how much you've done for us how you never let us go how you are so 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 good all we can do is to give you our complete worship to give you our complete lives God as we study tonight how you revealed yourself to your disciples after you rose again. Reminding us that you truly are alive. And you are not a God that's way off out there somewhere, but you are right here. Touching our lives. 
transforming our lives so that we look more like you. Doing that good work in us. And you will be faithful to continue that work until that day when you call us home. So we can trust in your goodness. And so we say, Jesus, we love you. We pour out our lives to you and ask you to continue to do your good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would find your way over to uh, John 21, the last chapter in John. Next week, uh, we are going to be having a night of worship and communion. We'll be finishing up John tonight, and then next week we're going to do worship, communion, the whole night. And then we're going to go into Galatians, which will be the next book that, uh, that's kind of in our series. And, and journeying through the Bible, we've hit Romans already, we're, we're doing Acts right now, and we've done a number of different things. So we're, we're journeying through and going to be hitting Galatians. I encourage you, though, to come next week. Because uh, it's really an incredible thing to be able to just sit and be present, to worship, to have communion, just to pause and, and to reflect on those things. Tonight, though, we're picking up in what we would call John's epilogue. It's the, the last, he's bringing everything together in his specific gospel as he's been giving the accounts of reasons why we should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he has to deal with a couple of things. One, he's going to deal with Peter's restoration after his denial of, of Jesus. Also, there was a rumor running around that John, the, the disciple, was going to be around until uh, the return of Jesus. And so he wanted to be able to deal with that topic. And also, there there is this... <laughs> little rivalry that's going on between John and, and Peter. And we're going to see that, you know, here in this little competition that they have between them. We last left the disciples witnessing the resurrection of Jesus, seeing him, and, and they've already spent time with him. Jesus has resurrected from the dead, but he's absent from them. And so now it's, a, it's kind of this post-resurrection response. One of the most dangerous times in a, a person's faith journey is the time from which they come to faith and they have a, a great spiritual experience and then they re- return back to life. We always love the mountaintop experiences, don't we? Where, you know, it's like, oh man, this was great. You know, the guys we just got off the men's retreat, that's great. And then you got to go to work on Monday. And the same thing's true for a new believer. You get saved. You come to a place of the awareness of who Jesus is and all of this. And then you're back into the day-to-day grind, going back to where you're at. Now, Jesus had told the disciples after his, his resurrection, go back to Galilee and wait for me there. And wait for me. And so what they do is they're wrestling with their normal lives. And the question is, once they're back in Galilee, what do we do? Jesus has always been here. He's been our teacher for three years. He's told us where to go, when we eat, what place we go, where we live. What are we doing this night? Now we're on our own. What are we going to do? And they're trying to figure this out. Because after the cross, everything changed. Everything changed. And their life was no longer going to be as it was before. 
They hadn't received the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit yet, to, to guide them. And so they're kind of in this in-between state. Have you ever been there? In that kind of in-between state? Where you're, you're, you're just kind of like, okay, I'm going, but I'm not really sure about this. And trying to figure out what the next step is in that. And so with, with that, we're going to be seeing kind of what these marching orders are going to, going to be for them. The danger, though, is falling back into an old way of life. And, and you have this spiritual experience, and you start in your journey, in your faith walk, and, and instead of you know, really peaking and growing, you're kind of in a plateau. And the danger is when you're in that plateau to turn around and go back to the way things were. Because they're comfortable. Because I know them. And, and th- these old ways of life. And the danger is not moving forward, but turning back. Your faith journey is one directional. It's an upward direction to the holiness of God, to the righteousness of God. There are no U-turns in your faith journey. God does not call you to turn around and go back for a while. He always wants us to be going forward and following Jesus, whether you see Him or not, whether you have clear direction or not. The problem is our old human nature drives us back to those comfort zones. Those places where we used to hang out, the people that we used to hang out with, the practice that we did, the old things that were there. And our flesh is like a magnet. It will draw us back to those comfort zones. That, that we're in that place. And so we're going to see that tension within the disciples tonight. Jesus has saved you out of the world, not to return back to the world, but to be an influence to the world within that. You are saved with a purpose and saved with the mission. And so we're going to see how Jesus explains that in the life of Peter and, and really works through this. So let's jump right in. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see the, the setup here. And it says, after these things, after what things? After, after the resurrection, this epilogue, after these things, Jesus manifests himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifests himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, uh, we'll come with you too. And they all went out and they got into the boat. And that night they went out and they caught nothing. Now, first and foremost, when we see the after these things, it's after these, the resurrection and after the festival of the unleavened bread. They returned from Jerusalem. They came back to Galilee and they're, they're hanging around looking at each other within this. Now, John begins with what we see is the third narration of the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection within this. And he's starting out with the disciples that are there. There are ten different accounts throughout the Gospel of Jesus appearing at, at multiple times within this. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5-7, it says this, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom, whom renamed until now, but some have fallen asleep and appeared to James and to the other apostles. So, over a 40-day period, Jesus would periodically pop in and reveal himself to different people at different times, and up to 500 witnesses. So, it wasn't like Jesus had, had rose again from the dead and just vanished. 
He was revealing himself in different ways. But everything, like I said, post-cross had changed. Life would change. And that's true in your faith journey. When you get saved, everything changes. You have to start a new life. Your old life has gone away. You, you must start a new life. And it's going to be different. We would always love to stay in that place of that spiritual engagement where we first met Jesus and stay in that place, but, but He hasn't called us to that. Now, this third appearance is of the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did 80% of His miracles up in that time and His teaching within that region. It was Tiberias because it was the Roman name of the city of Tiberias. When we go to Israel in uh, March of 2024... We'll spend four nights on the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. We'll see the city of Tiberias and all of that that is there. He told them to go there and wait. In fact, in Matthew 26, 31-32, says this, Then Jesus said to him, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Note, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So this was the meeting place. They were to go back to this, this home base. Peter's house was there at Capernaum, and they would be in that place. In fact, I want to show you the, the map of, to give you an orientation of this. This will work. There he goes. Okay, so up here is Capernaum, and it's up in the northern area that is there. And then this is primarily where all of the miracles were being done. The city of Tiberias is right there. It's not very far around this bend. And so here we have Capernaum, and this was, this Capernaum and Bethsaida, or the house of fish, this was primarily the fishing grounds. Peter's house was right here, and they would have fished off of the shores that are in here. Mount of Beatitudes is up into this area here. Now, to give you another idea of what we're going to be talking about, Peter, this is what it looks like today. So, here we have three different churches. There's a church there, there's a church there, and this is also the, the Church of the Beatitudes that is up on this hill. This is the Lake Gennesaret, or the, the Sea of Galilee in this area, and you can come right down to this bottom area. And so we can leave that up for a minute. So these are all memorial places that are there. The traditional site and the appearance is called Tabga. Tabga is this place that is right here, where it is thought to be the place that we're going to talk about tonight, where it was the shoreline where Jesus would go and meet with Peter and the disciples, as we're going to read, um, in, in, with the fish. Now, the account of the fish and loaves is thought to be had in this area here, and Beatitudes is here. It's kind of interesting that this whole area, there was a lot of teaching, the multiplication I'm sorry, the, the teaching on the hill is on here. Multiplication being here, and then we see Jesus feeding them there. All within that same region. And the work that they were doing was very familiar. This was their hometown. They went back to their place. And so they're there with the disciples. Notice there are 11 remaining disciples because Judas had he killed himself. But note how they're named in verse 2. Peter and then Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel and Cana and the, the sons of Zebedee and two others that were within them. They're named a little bit different. Peter now takes this, this premier place. The church that is right next to the shoreline is called the Premacy of Peter because this was the place where Peter was reinstated 
within this. The others were all fishermen within that area. And what did they do? They went fishing within the fishing. And so they decided to go back fishing. Why? Because it's what they did. We don't have clear direction, so let's go back to fishing. I'm wondering, though, if Peter went back to fishing because he felt like, I really can't do this anymore. He's still hurting because he denied Jesus. He's still in that place of, of struggling. Here's the problem. Jesus called him out of being fishermen. In fact, he reoriented their trajectory for life when he called them out. Notice in Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And earlier, Peter said, had left everything. In Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What would there be for us? Peter always had in the back of his mind, what is my plan B? Being a Christ follower means that you're all in. You're following Christ. And, and Jesus wants you to be all in. And he says, look, it, I'm, I'm pulling you out of being a fisherman. I'm going to have you become fisher of men. And he's using this analogy that you're going to be an evangelist. And within that, we have to leave that old behind, that old lifestyle. So Peter goes back to fishing because he needs to pay the bills. Was he wrong? Not necessarily. But the problem was his heart. It wasn't the function that had an issue. It was his heart. He was lost. And he needed some redirection. What's interesting also is they fished all night, and how many fish did they catch? None. One of the things that's interesting, and when we go, you're going to see this, um, the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee use what's called cast nets. And they're weighted nets, and they take them on their shoulder, and then they throw them out, and they broadcast this net down, and it goes down. And these fishermen will fish on the Sea of Galilee to this day at night. They typically will take their boats out, and they'll be, I don't know, somewhere between 40 to 100 yards off of shore. There, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gravel bottom, and the fish will typically be in that gravel bottom feeding at night. And so these fishermen, they don't use poles and hooks. They use these cast nets. And they take the cast nets, and they, ca they broadcast these nets out at night. And typically, they're going to fish from the boat side to the shore side. And that, that is the practice. They fished all night, and they caught nothing. Why? Were they bad fishermen? No. Jesus had ordained that when they would go out fishing this night, that they would catch nothing. Here you see God's sovereignty in this passage where Jesus, in his sovereignty, says, Okay, I know they're going to go fishing. I'm going to let them go fishing. But they're not going to catch anything. I love how... how God is in control of everything we do. When we go back to our old lifestyle, after becoming a Christ follower, we will find that it produces nothing for our life. There's an emptiness. It's not the same. For a believer to go back to their old life, they're never going to be satisfied. They're never going to be satisfied without old life because they know better. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so Jesus was controlling the situation and wanted to teach them that their old life would be fruitless. It wouldn't be productive. 
Why? Because he's called them to a new life. There is a tendency for believers often when they get discouraged to try to go back and find fulfillment in their old life. Have you ever done that? And it won't find it. You won't be satisfied within this. And so that typically is the human response to our, our frustration. We, we go back to the old and it just, it just leaves us empty. So in verses 4 through 6, we see Jesus showing up. <clears throat> but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. And so they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Well, this defied all logic. You don't catch fish during the day, you catch it at night, at least the commercial fishermen. You don't catch it on the deep side, you catch it on the shallow side. Now this guy shows up and they don't know who he is. Have you ever gone fishing and there was the guy that always knew it all? You know, and they hear, hey, have you caught anything yet? And you're like, no. And you're, and you're like totally humbled, right? Well, why don't you try this lure or whatever? And we were at the sportsman show this year and it was funny. We were walking the aisles and, and I can tell you this, especially in the fishing area, they were catching a lot of fishermen. It was amazing. And I was talking with this guy that had come up with this flasher. And I looked at it, and the flasher kind of looked like a fish, and it had these fins. And I go, that's really different. Does it work? And he goes, yeah, it catches a lot of fishermen. And I said, it looks just like the other ones. He goes, yeah, but it catches a lot of fishermen. And I thought, oh, you crook. He's, he's come up with another thing. But all the, you, know, you go, and you've got to buy the, the, the latest and the greatest because you're going to catch more fish. Jesus stands on the shore and he says to the guys, throw your net on the other side. And at the command of Jesus, they do. And guess what they catch? More fish than they could imagine. More fish than they could haul into the boat. I think it's interesting that as Jesus is standing on the shore, mind you, they're not very far off the shore. They can see. It's daylight. They don't recognize him. Do you think that was intentional on Jesus' part, not to be recognized? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because he's setting them up for a huge object lesson. You say, well, that's not very fair. Oh, no, it's very cool. Just like on the road to Emmaus where Jesus had hid his identity and talked with them and had a conversation with them. Or Mary, prior to the tomb, Jesus had kept himself hidden until the right time to reveal himself. Guys, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Well, we haven't caught anything all night. Let's go ahead and let's try to do that. Because we've got no other fish. We've got nothing that, that we can call our own. And so within this, they throw their net on the other side of the boat and they can't haul the net in. Seven grown men can't haul this, this net into the boat. That's a lot of fish that's in there. And we think about this. They went from an unproductive, self-driven agenda to following one command and experiencing abundance. Hmm. 
Isn't that a lesson for us? When we think that we got it all planned out, we're going to go our direction and this is what we're going to do and God's not around and I just got to fend for myself and I got to make it happen and I'm, I'm just going to do this and nothingness. And Jesus with one word says, why don't you try this and you do it and it blows you away. The provision that is there. More fish than they can handle. Here's the other thing. If you notice... Verse 11, drop down to verse 11 really quick. We'll, we'll come back to it. But notice in verse 11 it says, Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It didn't break. Hang on to that thought. More fish than they can handle. They can't get the net into the boat, so they've got to drag it alongside the boat to the shore, and they don't lose one. So what is the lesson? Well, when we take a look at this, one of the things that we see in verses 7 through 11 is that Peter and John, they recognize who the fishing coach is. It says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and we know that to be John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Again, you've got to understand the competition. John's writing this. And what did he say? I recognize that it was Jesus first. I had to tell Peter. So he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Simon heard Peter, or yeah, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for it was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, in, in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of the fish. And so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, fish placed on in the bread, and Jesus said to them. Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of a large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So one of the things that we see is this. John goes to Peter and goes, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. Now, this is such a Peter thing, right? Do you remember when Mary came and told the disciples somebody had taken his body and they both ran. John says, I outran him, but Peter pushed through and went into the tomb. They're always this thing, Peter. He just doesn't think. He's fully dressed. He jumps out. I imagine John snickering as he's writing this, going, yeah, Peter swam the sword. We just rode. It's okay. But the other thing I think is interesting. When they realize, when you realize that the Lord's there, there are some people that are very just all in, going for it, and other people are a little bit slower to move, both recognizing, and that tells me that your experience with God is going to be different. Everybody's experience with the Lord in the Lord's direction is going to be different. Both realized that it was the Lord. Peter just went in. He left all the fish. He just swam to go see Jesus. Left John and the other guys to drag the, the load in. Now, there was something else, though. Why this object lesson? Why did Jesus choose this corner on the Sea of Galilee where they fished a lot, let them fish all night to catch no fish, to show up in the morning and say, fish on the other side where they catch an abundance of fish. Because he had done this earlier. In Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out your... Put out into the deep water 
Let your net down for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. This had happened before. But they had caught so much their, their nets were breaking. This time the nets weren't breaking. Jesus used an earlier lesson in their spiritual journey to reinforce the direction of their life today. God's going to do that for you. When you get to a place where you get lost and you get kind of wandering and you're like, what do we do next? And then God does something. Often what He will do is He will bring back to your life something that He taught you earlier to reinforce that statement. Peter goes, it's the Lord. It's the Lord because we've got all of these fish because He did this before. And reinforces that lesson. Can you think of times in your life where God has repeated the lessons to remind you of the lesson, taking you through a situation where He has shown Himself to be faithful, and then over a period of time you've kind of forgotten about that, and then He takes you through that situation again to show that He's faithful, to remind you of that calling? We know that, that when He got there, Peter grabbed the, the bundle of fish, Within this, we know that in the first instance, Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And, and Jesus would say, Don't fear, from now on you'll be catching men. This whole miracle was really about reinstating Peter. Getting to the place where he understands God's provision. I love the analogy, though, that the net was not going to break. Not lose one. Why? Because the new ministry, Peter, that you're going to be involved with, the new ministry, John, that you're going to be involved with, is catching men that I keep. I'm not losing any. We're going to be in that place and making that, that provision. The other thing that I think is interesting is they get to the shoreline. There's some things in 9 through 11 that we don't want to miss. When they got out on the land, they saw what? A, what? Charcoal fire. Why would John specifically say charcoal fire? He would specifically say charcoal fire within this because if you remember, it was around a charcoal fire that Peter denied knowing the Lord. And John accounts for it as a charcoal fire within this. We also know that this was a place of multiplication, as we saw in fact, in John 6, 5, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing that the large crowd coming to him said, Philip, where are we going to buy these fish? But here Jesus has fish already. Where did he get the fish from? Where did he get the fish from? He's got fish roasting on the fire. Where did he get them from? He's not more than 300 yards from the place where they fed the 5,000. Very close. Within this. And here he feeds the disciples. This charcoal fire. John 18, 18 says this. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire. For it was cold there. They were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing by and warming himself. 
In the first charcoal fire, Peter was denying knowing Jesus. In this charcoal fire, Jesus is sharing a meal with him. Isn't that a powerful picture? We can see that. We can see in this little spot on the Sea of Galilee, all of these memories being brought in. When you get lost, when you wander, when you struggle in your faith journey, and you're looking for direction, pause and reflect. God, what are you showing me? What have you shown me in the past and what do I see now? How are you providing for me? How are you making yourself real? It is these little things that God speaks to us loudly with a megaphone sometimes. If you see them, if you stop, and if you recognize these things that are there. This was the place where Jesus would meet with his disciples. This was the place where he first called them to be fishers of men. This is the place where he showed his powerful provision. This is the place where he continued to reveal himself for them to be on mission. The other thing I think is interesting is Jesus, not only did he provide, but he says, bring some of what you caught within this. Now, Jesus had the abundance, but did Jesus not have enough? No, he had plenty. But the other part of it is this. Jesus wanted to prove the necessity of partnership in ministry. Do you realize when you go out and you evangelize, you don't save anybody? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You're going down and you're letting the net out. But it's God who brings those people to you. And then you bring your, your, your people to the Lord. And you share in the joy and the abundance of them coming to faith. And you share in that. Jesus is saying this, this new ministry that you're going to be involved with is a partnership. Here is a sobering thought. God has chosen you to be part of somebody else's eternal destiny. He has chosen you to be part of somebody else's eternal destiny. By sharing the gospel with them. That's powerful. Every time you open your mouth and you share Jesus, you get that opportunity. And this ministry is going to be new. Now, years ago in one of our Israel trips, there was, the guide was, thought he would be funny. He says, what does the 153 stand for? Why 153? And then he did this like whole theological gymnastic thing about the 153 fish, and what it stands for is numerically and all of this stuff, and, and the tribes and all this other stuff. Everything I've read is all guesswork. Why does the text say 153? Question. Whenever you go fishing with somebody, can they tell you how many fish they've caught? Every time. But the other aspect that I think is just deeper in that the 153 is a number that says Jesus knows everyone and everyone is identified. He knows you by name. He knows those who are His. Whether it's 153 or 173, it doesn't matter. The whole point is, He knows everyone. And not one of them was lost. Not one of them was lost and the net was never broke. 
within them. So Jesus goes on and he, divides them, he invites them to eat with him. Notice in verses 12 to 14, Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus manifests to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love the fact that Jesus, again, repeatedly, in this, he repeatedly is doing the same thing over and over and over again. Your faith journey with Jesus is going to be a repetition of over and over and over again. Him doing and teaching you the same thing. Why? Because we don't get it the first time. Don't we need to be taught over again? Often. We forget. And so he, he uses, and you think about this, this pattern. Jesus has this pattern of invitation... Come and have fellowship with me. Eat. We think about that. This invitation for, for Nathaniel, you know, it was all about come and see. In John 1.46, Nathaniel said, come. Or can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. John 6.51. I am the living bread and came down of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give him for the life is my flesh. Is come and eat. In John 7, 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is always getting this invitation to come. Come and fellowship with me. He didn't leave these guys out on the boat. He didn't leave them fishless. He said, I'll provide for you. Come and let's have fellowship together. I was talking with somebody earlier this week. And, and they said, um, you know... And I introduced myself to them and, and introduced them to myself. I said, hi, you know, I'm Carrie. And they introduced themselves. And they said, I know who you are. I watch online. And I said, oh, well, it's good to, good to see you. I, I, I wouldn't know. It'd be good for you to be able to come to church so I can, I can see who you are. And, and granted, you know, I love the fact that we have the ability to go online. And that's good for people that can't get out. But if you can get out, you should be here. To come and to fellowship and to be together, to have in common those things. Next week when we do worship and we, we share the bread and the cup, we do that together. It enhances our faith. This COVID thing really messed everybody up, didn't it? It got everybody isolated. The church needs to gather together, to worship together. And I love what God is doing, especially with some of the young people there's some Gen Zers that are gathering together and worshiping in different churches right now, college campuses, and they're worshiping for days upon days upon days. And they're gathering together. We need that. We need this, this sense of unity within this to see and experience the presence of Jesus. Well, as he goes on in verses 15 to 25, John now works through the reinstatement piece after the provision piece. And he says, so when he finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lamps. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, 
tend my sheep. Now, this is all about the reinstatement. It's set up, and now we have this devotion. Did Jesus need to ask Peter three times? Yeah, he did. Why? Because Peter denied him three times. This was all about Peter coming to that place of of reconciling himself to the Lord within his devotion. He asked him this question, do you love me? Now again, prior to the cross, Peter says, I'm never going to leave you. He made this vow. He he said, I'm going to lay down in in John 13, 37. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life. We know that Peter had good intentions. He had the sword in the garden and swung it wildly. Took off the guy's ear. That was a bad day. And then that set him up to failure. He loved Jesus. But did he love Jesus more than his own life? No. That's why he denied him. He was scared for his own skin. And the last time that Peter was around a charcoal fire was he was denying Jesus. And now he's around the charcoal fire having been fed. And Jesus is now questioning him again. Can you imagine how Peter might have been feeling at this time? How would you feel if you were Peter? If you're sitting by this fire and you're warming yourself and you've been fed just like Jesus had done before, and you're around this charcoal fire, and you're still on edge because of that, eh, we really haven't addressed the whole denial thing. And Jesus looks you in the eye and He says, do you love me? How would you feel? Would, would your stomach turn to butterfly? Oh no. Now we're going to... We're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with this in front of everybody. And it was intentionally in front of the other disciples. They all knew that Peter had denied him. Last time Peter was there, it was a little slave girl. In fact, in chapter 18, verse 17, it says the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He says, I'm not. And then the second time in, in 25, Peter was standing by, warming himself. He says, You're not also one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it again. He says, I'm not. And then in 27 of of chapter 18, Peter denied it again and the rooster crowed. Peter's public denial required a public restoration. One of the things that I think is super important is when we fail, and people know that we fail, we need to be publicly restored. And that is the, the, the part of the restoration piece. God doesn't want to shame anybody. But God wants to restore people. There have many, been many pastors that have fallen from grace and, and been disqualified from spiritual ministry. Only a few that I know of have been restored. But the restoration piece has been essential One in particular in Southern California had an affair with his secretary. A a pastor and and teacher of a large ministry in Southern California. The board said, you're done. You're done with this church. You're done here. 
And he was disgraced, and he should have been. He failed. Another pastor, who I have great respect for, took him under his wing, met with him, counseled with him, took three years of private discipleship with this man. And after three years of, of, of ministry, counseled him to restoration of his marriage, and then took him in front of the congregation and publicly restored him, declaring him to be restored to the Lord. Could he ever hold a position as a, as a lead pastor? No. But it was a public failure, and it was a public restoration. And it took a long time to do that, to get to that place. But it was imperative that there was a public restoration within that, not just for the pastor who had failed, but for the congregation and the people that knew of it. Because one of the dangers that happens is Satan will get you to this place where when you fail, you will feel like a failure and you will never show your face again. And that's dangerous. And not to be so in the family of God. We need to be able to love and to restore those who, who fail, who fall, who are in those positions. And we need to be able to give them an opportunity. I love the fact how Jesus did this. He just asked him, do you love me? He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, look at Peter, let's talk about when you denied me. Let's talk about your failure in front. No, he just said, I'm just calling you to come back. I'm just calling you to come back. And he restores him that way. And I think it's imperative to do that. Peter was given this privilege of being the first, the, the premise that was there. Now, a lot of people will do, again, gymnastics with the words. So between agape, Peter, you know, do you agape me? Yeah, Lord, I phileo you. Do you agape me and I phileo you? And I've heard all kinds of different studies. Those words are used interchangeably in, in, in Koine Greek. So you don't want to get all hung up on them. You want to, you want to focus on the, on the meaning. So then the question is, well, what are the these? Do you love me more than these? Could it be, do you love me more than the disciples present? Could be. Do you love me more than fishing? Well, now you're getting personal, Jesus. But he did leave Jesus and go back to fishing. Do you love me more than any man, including yourself? Jesus is looking for hearts that are completely devoted to Him. Those are the ones He can really use. A double-minded man is unstable in all their ways. Peter was being set up so that in Acts chapter 2, he would be given the Holy Spirit and given the ability to preach the first gospel message. But to get there, he had to be devoted. And to get there, he had to have a clear conscience and be restored. And so in God's divine sovereignty, he was looking at restoring Peter for a greater purpose. Why did his devotion fail? Again, it was for, for maybe lack of belief or security or, or these other things. We don't know. Peter made a great declaration, though, at one time. And I think this was a declaration of faith. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, he said to them, 
Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is heaven. What did Jesus do? And here's the point of restoration. Let's go back to what you believe. Let's go back to the beginning. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Okay, we can work with that. We can work with that. To end that place. Dealing with these questions. There are times in our life, in our faith journey, where we will have these questions and we have to wrestle with them. If Jesus was to ask you that question today, do you love Him more than? How would you finish the statement? Lord, I love you more than mm, most things. I love you more than fishing. I love you more than money. I love you more than my job. I love you more than anything. How would you finish that? Is there anything that is in competition for your love for Christ? Because if there is... There's going to be a problem in your ministry and your trajectory. The things that are going forward. I love you more than anything and everything. I totally to get there in that place. Peter was, was, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, we look at this and he directs him to the ministry every time. Do you love me? Yes. Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Take care of my sheep. What is the one thing that God's calling you to do? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then this is what you need to do. There's action attached to love. Love is a verb. I love you, Lord. Therefore, out of love, I'm going to serve you. Jesus is basically saying, stop being a fisherman and become a pastor. Stop being a fisherman. You went back to fishing. Stop it. Stop being a fisherman. Become a pastor. Become a shepherd. Within that. Because there would be sheep to be taken care of. Peter would eventually understand this. If you look over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-3, through 3, Peter would write this. Later on in his life, therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of his glory that is to be revealed. Note, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over the allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. You don't see any fishing terms in there, do you? No. It says be a shepherd. Are you a shepherd? Are you a pastor? Shake your head yes. You all have flocks. Your flock may be your home. It may be your kids. Your flock is anybody that you have spiritual influence or relationship with. You all have flocks. And do it voluntarily. Serve others. 
And so within this, Peter is, in essence, reinstated to be a fisher of men, which is what his first calling was. And he's to be faithful, and he's commissioning him to go out. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive your unfading crown of glory. Peter got it. Peter got it. I believe this. There is no failure so great that God cannot restore you. You cannot fall so great that God cannot restore you. You think about King David. King David is described as what? A man after God's own heart. But he was also a murderer and an adulterer. Were there consequences? Yeah. But he's still a man after God's own heart. Don't give up on yourself because God never gives up on you. He will always seek to restore you in whatever the condition that you find yourself in. So Peter's called to this, this calling. And, and here's the part that may have caused pause for a minute. Because Jesus now prophesies over Peter. If you look at verses 18 and 19, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he was signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me within this. So within this, Jesus prophesies concerning Peter's future and death. So when you do a little bit of a study within this, we know that Peter was put to death somewhere between 64 or 67 A.D. According to Clement of Rome, who writes in 96 A.D. and Tertullian, 212 A.D., Peter was martyred, crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel qualified to be crucified the same way that Jesus was crucified. Peter would be arrested and then he would be crucified upside down. He would live another 30 years after this prophecy. 30 years to get it right. 30 years to do ministry. 30 years to shepherd the flock, to write his letters and all of these things. 30 years of new ministry that he would be capable of serving and to give his life for Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep and be that shepherd that is there. He'll be led where he didn't want to go, to death. But he knew that suffering was in his future. He writes about it in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, where he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Peter, you're going to be led to the cross. You're going to die upside down. Are you okay with that? Peter says, yes. We all are going to suffer. There are going to be times in our lives when we're going to have tragedy and difficulty. But realize this. Not one thing that happens to you doesn't come without God's notice and is already approved by God. Peter says, you're going to get fiery trials. Persevere. Because there's a crown waiting for you. 
we understand that it's difficult. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship says this, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man or woman, He bids them come and die. Surrender your life. And we live that way. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me where? Follow me in the same lifestyle that I lived, that you learned. Follow me and we're going to leave this place. Follow me. We're going to walk. Follow me. We're going to do ministry together. In a different way, but we're going to do ministry together and discipleship. Richard Wormbrandt writes this, Whoever wishes to meet Jesus must meet Him in places where His brothers and sisters of Jesus are hungry, thirsty, naked, unwanted, sick, or in prison. Whoever keeps himself distant from these places remains distant from Jesus. Let me read this again. It's a powerful quote. Whoever wishes to meet Jesus must meet Him in places where brothers and sisters of Jesus are hungry, thirsty, naked, unwanted, sick, or in prison. Whoever keeps himself distant from these places remains distant from Jesus. Why? Because when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to who? Me. I've shared it before. I haven't shared it in a while. Warren Wiersbe once said, Ministry takes place when divine resources from God meets human needs through loving channels for the glory of God. You are the hands and the feet of Jesus. Go to the places that, that people are in need, where they, they're desperate. Where are those places? It may be the pregnancy center in town. It may be the food bank. It may be the homeless shelter. It, it may be, get this, public school campuses reading to kids. Can I do that? Yes, you can. I know on both, both places they are looking for people just to come read with kids. Is it going out of the mission field? Yeah, it is. It is going to those places. That's following Jesus. Well, wait a minute. I've got vacation time. Die to self. Well, I don't know if I can do that. Homeless people make me uncomfortable. Well, you want to get close to Jesus? Go minister to the people as if they were Jesus. And whatever their needs are. And, and, and love them. Peter was called to focus. The problem is, Peter still had Peter in him. And we all do, don't we? Because Peter turns around after he hears this, he says, okay, I'm going to go where I don't want to go, and I'm going to die. And he turns around, and he looks at the disciples, and says, but what about these guys? Look at it, verse 20, he says, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following them, the one who also leaned on the bosom of the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one that betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> There's competition there. And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went about among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. Only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So Peter, realizing this, Turns around and says, well, what about John? If I'm going to die, he should die too. 
I don't know that I want Peter fishing with me anymore. History tells us that John would suffer according to Tertullian. John was boiled in oil in Rome. Nothing happened to him. Then he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote Revelation and possibly died in Ephesus sometime after 98 AD. What about him? I got a plan for him. Don't worry about him. Just worry about yourself. Jesus doesn't tell John, right? <laughs> Peter, you're going to go, you're going to get crucified upside down. But John, you're going to get boiled in oil and go live on an island by yourself. Doesn't tell him that. And, but we look at that and we've got to understand that God's got a plan for everybody. It's going to be different. Well, what about the other guy? I don't know. Why does God take the life of somebody at 35 years of age and let somebody live to 104? I don't know. It's their faith journey. And God's got ministry for them. Don't worry about the other guy. You just follow Jesus. Lots of times people say, well, God, why me? And the answer is, why not you? Why me, God? Why not? Are you more special than anybody else? Your journey is your journey. Preordained by God. To be His witnesses. You will minister to the people that God has for you, and the other person will minister to the people that God has for them. And we shouldn't be comparing ourselves or concerned to what other people are into. Jesus says, if I want them to remain, what's that to you? Do we sometimes get sidetracked by looking at other people? We do. We get sidetracked. We compare. God, why is my life so hard and their life is so easy? You ever thought that? Why do I have such a messed up family and they got such a good family? Why is my physical stuff going on and they don't seem to have... Why, God? Don't worry about the other person. I find I only have the capacity to manage one person. Me. When I start looking at other people and I start comparing to other people, that is a trap that creates a double-mindedness in me. As John would write in this letter about himself, that this thing was confusing, he clarified it. He says, no, that, that's not what it's about. And it's not confusing until I come. They were, they were thinking that Jesus was going to come back. But one of the things that was true that I think we've lost, the early church believed in the imminent return of Jesus. They believed Jesus could come back at any time. We've lost that concept, haven't we? We've become comfortable. But do you know Jesus could come back at any moment? He can come back and take us out any moment. Are you ready? Are there people you still have to talk to? Are there people that, that haven't come to faith yet that you need to hear the gospel? In 1 John, the author of this book, writes in his later letters, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And he wrote that over 2,000 years ago. Anytime. I think we're closer now than ever before, though. If you take a look at, at apocalyptic literature, and you take a look at prophecy, and you take a look at the positioning of Russia and China, and all of those players are all playing together like never before... It could be any moment. It literally could be any moment where we could see 
things happen. And the believers can go. John finishes his letter in verses 24 and 25 with this uh, declaration of truth. And it's just his signature. This is the disciple who is testifying these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself wouldn't contain all the books that were written into this. In other words, John closes out his writing. He says, I testify this is true. I don't testify that this is comprehensive because I couldn't write about everything. But I gave you what you needed to know. What do you need to know? That Jesus is the Son of God and in Him is eternal life. That's what we need to know. That's what we need to share. John is a, is a great gospel to walk through with somebody that has just come to faith because it's all of the essentials to teach that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's go ahead and let's pray as we close out this book and end our night. God, I thank you that you've given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, that you give us the truth because you are the truth. You've shown us the way because you are the way. And you, you provide for us life because in you is life. Lord, so many times we get so sideways in our failures that we fail to see that You're right there. And You're right there ready to restore, not to blame. You're right there ready to bring us back into fellowship, not to discourage us or, or to penalize us. God, I love the fact that for Peter, You restored him for the purpose by which You've called him. And even though he got off the rails, you brought him back. And he was brought back in such a way that he could remain faithful to the end. Lord, every single one of us are prone to failure. And there are times in our life when we get off the rails. But I thank you that by your grace you bring us back. May we trust in you. Not worry about what's going on with other people. But just keep our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As we close out tonight, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And give you praise that is due your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.
in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.